folks, this is Mark Davis coming at you from My Grand Rounds. I'm going to jump right into the next topic, which is agitation and delirium. Agitation and delirium are commonly encountered in the intensive care unit. They are more than just an inconvenience. These conditions can have deleterious effects on patients and staff's safety and contribute to poor outcomes. It is therefore important for clinicians to be able to recognize agitation and delirium and to have an organized approach for its evaluation and management. Agitation is a psychomotor disturbance characterized by excessive motor activity associated with a feeling of inner tension. The activity is usually non-productive and repetitious, consisting of behaviors such as pacing, fidgeting, wringing of hands, pulling of clothes, and an inability to sit still. Careful observation of the patient may reveal the underlying intent. In the ICU, agitation is frequently related to anxiety or delirium. Agitation may be caused by various factors, such as metabolic disorders like hypo and hypernatremia, hyperthermia, hypoxia, hypotension, use of sedative drugs and or analgesics, sepsis, alcohol withdrawal, and long-term psychoactive drug use, to name a few. It can also be caused by external factors such as noise, discomfort, and pain. Associated with a longer length of stay in the ICU and higher costs, agitation can be mild, characterized by increased movements, and an apparent inability to get comfortable, or it can be severe. Severe agitation can be life-threatening, leading to higher rates of self-extubation, self-removal of catheters and medical devices, nosocomial infections, hypoxia, barotrauma, and or hypotension due to patient ventilator asynchrony. Indeed, recent studies have shown that agitation contributes to ventilator asynchrony, increased oxygen consumption, and an increased production of CO2 and lactic acid. These effects can lead to life-threatening respiratory and metabolic acidosis. Delirium can be defined as follows. 1. A disturbance of consciousness, i.e. reduced clarity of awareness of the environment with reduced ability to focus, sustain, or shift attention. 2. A change in cognition, such as memory deficit, disorientation, language disturbance, or development of a perceptual disturbance that is not better accounted for by a pre-existing, established, or evolving dementia. 3. The disturbance develops over a short period, usually hours to days and tends to fluctuate during the course of the day. 4. There is evidence from the history, physical examination, or laboratory findings that the disturbance is a direct 
physiologic consequence of a general medical condition, an intoxicating substance, medication use, or more than one cause. Delirium is commonly underdiagnosed in the ICU and has a reported prevalence of 20 to 80%, depending on the severity of illness and the need for mechanical ventilation. Recent investigations have shown that the presence of delirium is a strong predictor of longer hospital stay, higher costs, and increased risk of death. Each additional day with delirium increases a patient's risk of dying by 10%. Longer periods of delirium are also associated with greater degrees of cognitive decline when patients are evaluated after one year. Thus, delirium can adversely affect the quality of life in survivors of critical illnesses and may serve as an intermediate recognizable step for targeting therapies to prevent poor outcomes in survivors of critical illness. Unfortunately, the true prevalence and magnitude of delirium have been poorly documented because myriad terms, including acute confusional state, ICU psychosis, acute brain dysfunction, and encephalopathy have been used to describe this condition. Delirium can be classified according to psychomotor behavior into hypoactive delirium, hyperactive delirium, or a mixed subtype. Hypoactive delirium, which is the most prevalent form of delirium, is characterized by decreased physical and mental activity and inattention. In contrast, hyperactive delirium is characterized by combativeness and agitation. Patients with both features have mixed delirium. Hyperactive delirium puts both patients and caregivers at risk of serious injury, but fortunately only occurs in a minority of critically ill patients. Hypoactive delirium might actually be associated with a worse prognosis. The delirium motor subtype scale may assist in making this diagnosis. Although healthcare professionals realize the importance of recognizing delirium, it frequently goes unrecognized in the ICU. Even when ICU delirium is recognized, most clinicians consider it an expected event that is often iatrogenic and without consequence. However, it needs to be viewed as a form of organic brain dysfunction that has consequences if left undiagnosed and untreated. The risk factors for agitation and delirium are many and overlap to a large extent. Fortunately, there are several mnemonics that can aid clinicians in recalling the list. The two common ones are I watch death and delirium. I watch death stands for infection, withdrawal, acute metabolic, trauma, pain, central nervous system pathology, hypoxia, 
deficiencies such as vitamin B12 and thiamine, endocrinopathies such as thyroid or adrenal, acute vascular such as hypertension or shock, toxins and drugs, and heavy metals. The mnemonic delirium stands for drugs, electrolyte and physiologic abnormalities, lack of drugs, i.e. withdrawal, infection, reduced sensory input, such as blindness and deafness, intracranial problems, such as CVA, meningitis, or seizures, urinary retention, and fecal impaction, myocardial problems, such as MI, arrhythmias, or congestive heart failure. In practical terms, risk factors can be divided into three categories. The acute illness itself, patient factors, and iatrogenic or environmental factors. Importantly, a number of medications that are commonly used in the ICU are associated with the development of agitation and delirium. A thorough approach to the treatment and support of the acute illness, such as controlling sources of sepsis and giving appropriate antibiotics, correcting hypoxia, metabolic disturbances, dehydration, and hyperthermia, as well as normalizing sleep-wake cycles, as well as minimizing iatrogenic factors such as excessive sedation, can reduce the incidence and or severity of delirium and its attendant complications. A retrospective study conducted on post-operative delirium, specifically in patients undergoing cardiopulmonary bypass, has alluded to a decreased incidence of delirium in patients pre-treated with statins. Furthermore, ICU statins have been associated with decreased delirium, most significantly in the early stages of sepsis. In contrast to this, discontinuation of statins has been shown to be associated with increased delirium. The pathophysiology of delirium is poorly understood although there are a number of hypotheses. Neurotransmitter imbalance. Multiple neurotransmitters have been implicated, including dopamine in excess, acetylcholine, relative depletion, and GABA, serotonin, endorphins, norepinephrine, and glutamate. Inflammatory mediators such as tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin-1, and other cytokines and chemokines have been implicated in the pathogenesis of endothelial damage, thrombin formation, and microvascular dysfunction in the central nervous system, contributing to delirium. Recently, a study in the ICU has strengthened the evidence of a role for endothelial dysfunction in increasing the duration of delirium, impaired oxidative metabolism. According to this hypothesis, delirium is a result of cerebral insufficiency 
secondary to a global failure in oxidative metabolism. Large neutral amino acids. Increased cerebral uptake of tryptophan and tyrosine can lead to elevated levels of serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine in the CNS. Altered availability of these amino acids is associated with increased risk of development of delirium. Recently, the Society of Critical Care Medicine published guidelines for the use of sedatives and analgesics in the ICU. The SCCM has recommended the routine monitoring of pain, anxiety, and delirium and the documentation of responses to therapy for these conditions. There are many scales available for the assessment of agitation and sedation, including the Ramsey Scale, the Riker Sedation Agitation Scale, the Motor Activity Assessment Scale, the Richmond Agitation Sedation Scale, the Adaptation to Intensive Care Environment Scale, and the Minnesota Sedation Assessment Tool. Most of these scales have good reliability and validity among adult ICU patients and can be used to set targets for goal-directed sedative administration. The SAS, which scores agitation and sedation using a 7-point system, has excellent inter-rater reliability and is highly correlated with other scales. The RAS, however, is the only method shown to detect variations in the level of consciousness over time or in response to changes in sedative and analgesic drug use. The 10-point RAS scale has discrete criteria to distinguish levels of agitation and sedation. The evaluation of patients consists of a three-step process. First, the patient is observed to determine whether he or she is alert, restless, or agitated. Second, if the patient is not alert and does not show positive motoric characteristics, the patient's name is called and his or her sedation level scored based on the duration of eye contact. Third, if there is no eye opening on verbal stimulation, the patient's shoulder is shaken or pressure applied over the sternum by rubbing and the response noted. This assessment takes less than 20 seconds in total and correlates well with the other measures of sedation, such as the Glasgow Coma Scale, Bispectral Electroencephalography, and Neuropsychiatric Ratings. Until recently, there was no valid and reliable way to assess delirium in critically ill patients, many of whom are nonverbal owing to sedation or mechanical ventilation. A number of tools have been developed to aid in the detection of delirium in the ICU. These tools have been validated for use in both intubated and non-intubated patients and measured against a gold standard, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders Criteria. The tools are the Confusion Assessment Method for the ICU and the Intensive Care Delirium Screening Checklist. The CAM-ICU is a delirium measurement tool 
developed by a team of specialists in critical care, psychiatry, neurology, and geriatrics. Administered by a nurse, the evaluation takes only one to two minutes to conduct and is 98% accurate in detecting delirium as compared with a full DSM-5 assessment by a geriatric psychiatrist. To perform the CAM-ICU, patients are first evaluated for a level of consciousness. Patients who respond to verbal commands can then be assessed for delirium. The CAM-ICU comprises four features. One, a change in mental status from baseline or a fluctuation in mental status. Two, inattention. Three, disorganized thinking. And four, altered level of consciousness. Delirium is diagnosed if patients have features one and two and either features three or four is positive. The ICDSC is a checklist-based assessment tool that evaluates inattention, disorientation, hallucination, delusion or psychosis, psychomotor agitation or retardation, inappropriate speech or mood, sleep-wake cycle disturbances, and fluctuations in these symptoms. Each of the eight items is scored as absent or present, respectively, and summed. A score of four or above indicates delirium, while zero indicates no delirium. Patients with scores between one and three are considered to have subsyndromal delirium, which has worse prognostic implications than the absence of delirium but a better prognosis than clearly present delirium. Recent studies have called into question the usefulness of delirium evaluations for patients under sedation. A small subset of patients, approximately 10%, were noted to have rapidly reversible sedation-related delirium. But, unfortunately, in this study, the majority of patients continued to have persistent delirium even after interruption of sedation. Thus, when feasible, delirium evaluation should be performed after interruption of sedation. However, delirium evaluations should not be foregone just because a patient is under sedation since the omission of the diagnosis would be far worse than overdiagnosing delirium in a handful of patients. Development of effective evidence-based strategies and protocols for prevention and treatment of delirium awaits data from ongoing randomized clinical trials of both non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic strategies. When agitation or delirium develops in a previously comfortable patient, a search for the underlying cause should be undertaken before attempting pharmacologic intervention. A rapid assessment should be performed, including assessment of vital signs and physical examination to rule out life-threatening problems such as hypoxia, self-extubation, pneumothorax, and hypotension, or other acutely reversible physiologic causes such as hypoglycemia, 
metabolic acidosis, stroke, seizure, and pain. The previously mentioned eye watch death and delirium mnemonics can be particularly helpful in guiding this initial evaluation. Once life-threatening causes are ruled out as possible etiologies, aspects of good patient care, such as reorienting patients, improving sleep and hygiene, providing visual and hearing aids if previously used, removing medications that can provoke delirium, and decreasing the use of invasive devices if not required, such as bladder catheters and restraints, should be undertaken. The use of ABCDEs, awakening and breathing trials, choice of appropriate sedation, delirium monitoring and management, and early mobility and exercise has been shown to decrease the incidence of delirium and improve patient outcomes. This algorithm, based on the PAD 2013 guidelines, involves the following. 1. Routine assessment of agitation, depth, and quality of sedation and delirium using appropriate scales, RAS and SAS for agitation, and sedation and CAM-ICU or ICDSC for delirium. They recommend using protocol target-based sedation and targeting the lightest possible sedation, thus exposing the patient to lower cumulative doses of sedatives and or daily awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials to reduce the total time spent on mechanical ventilation. Coordination of daily awakening and daily breathing was associated with shorter durations of mechanical ventilation, reduction in length of hospital stay, and no long-term neuropsychologic consequences of waking patients during critical illness. 2. Treatment should start with treating analgesia first. Choosing the right sedative regimen in critically ill patients is important. Numerous studies have confirmed that benzodiazepines are associated with poor clinical outcomes. The guidelines also recommend avoiding rivastigmine and antipsychotics if there is an increased risk of torsades de points. 3. Prevention also plays an important role. Exercise and early mobility in ICU patients is associated with decreased length of both ICU and hospital polypharmacy. Risk factors for delirium need to be identified and eliminated. Promoting sleep and restarting baseline antipsychotic medications are also important. Data from the maximizing efficacy of targeted sedation and reducing neurological dysfunction study and the safety and efficacy of dexmedetomidine compared to midazolam trial also support the view that dexmedetomidine can decrease the duration and prevalence of delirium when compared to lorazepam or midazolam. Pharmacologic therapy should be attempted only after correcting any contributing factors or underlying physiologic abnormalities. Although these agents are intended to improve cognition, they all have psychoactive effects 
that can further cloud the sensorium and promote a longer overall duration of cognitive impairment. Patients who manifest delirium should be treated with traditional antipsychotic medications. Newer atypical antipsychotic agents such as risperidone, ziprazidone, quetiapine, and olanzapine may decrease the duration of delirium. Benzodiazepines are not recommended for the management of delirium because they can paradoxically exacerbate delirium. These drugs can also promote oversedation and respiratory suppression. However, they remain the drugs of choice for the treatment of delirium tremens and other withdrawal syndromes, as well as seizures. At times, mechanical restraints may be needed to ensure the safety of patients and staff while waiting for medications to take effect. It is important to keep in mind, however, that restraints can increase agitation and delirium, and their use may have adverse consequences including strangulation, nerve injury, skin breakdown, and other complications of immobilization. Agitation and delirium are very common in the ICU, where their occurrence puts patients at risk of self-injury and poor clinical outcomes. Available sedation and delirium monitoring instruments allow clinicians to recognize these forms of brain dysfunction. Through a systematic approach, life-threatening problems and other acutely reversible physiologic causes can be rapidly identified and remedied. A strategy that focuses on early liberation from mechanical ventilation and early mobilization can help reduce the burden of delirium. Use of antipsychotics should be reserved for patients who pose an imminent risk to themselves or staff. This concludes the podcast on agitation and delirium. I hope you're enjoying, I hope you're learning, and I hope you're applying. Don't forget, if you're listening at Apple Podcasts, rate and write a review. Sources for this podcast include the ICU book, the textbook of critical care, and up to date.